0: Hello, friends. Wayne Stiles here, and I'm excited to host a Bible conference next year on the topic of waiting on God from the life of Joseph in Genesis. The dates are June 12 through 15, 2025. And the conference is going to be at the beautiful Glen Airy Conference Center in Colorado Springs. Fernando Ortega will be joining us to lead in worship each session and to give a concert one evening. More information and registration is going to be coming soon, but mark your calendar for June 12-15, through 2025. This episode of Live the Bible is brought to you by Walking the Bible Lands. If you haven't been to Israel yet or you'd like to relive your tour, These on-site videos are the next best thing to being there. Check it out at walkingthebiblelands.com. Hello and welcome to Live the Bible. My name is Wayne Stiles, and this is the podcast that helps you connect the Bible to your daily life. For most of the world, feeling whole is like trying to squeeze a handful of sand. The harder they clench, the more grains slip through their fingers. It is a futile quest. In this episode of Live the Bible, we'll look at an often confusing part of the Old Testament that talks about people being unclean. And it has nothing to do with soap. It also has nothing necessarily to do with sin. It has everything to do with walking with God as a whole person. That is what's missing. I'll be back in a bit, but for now, let's get right into this week's podcast. Yesterday, I visited with my daughter and son-in-law in in Tyler, Texas, drove over there and had a good visit with them. She's four months away from giving us our first grandchild, and that's really what she's doing. It's, I mean, giving us a grandchild. That's the goal. And uh, in a quiet moment, she kind of leaned over and she said, Dad, is my body going to go back to normal after the baby? <laughs> and I said, yes, but it's a new normal. <laughs> it's, it's the way it'll be from here on out. <clears throat> so, but what I didn't tell her was that according to the Washington Post, uh, as they uh, indicated last October, there was a new analysis of data from the U.S. Agricultural Department that the average cost of raising a child from the day the baby is born until the day they turn eighteen is three hundred and ten thousand six hundred and five dollars. Three hundred and ten thousand dollars. That's about seventeen thousand a year. That's fourteen hundred sixteen dollars a month, that's a mere forty seven dollars a day or two bucks an hour. That's what it cost, average. And what do you get for this investment? <laughs> well, let me share some good stuff you get. The hard stuff, I think, is obvious enough. But think about it. We get, we get glimpses of God every day. We get creative phrases we never would have thought of. Kids say the best things. We get giggles under the covers we get more love than our hearts can hold. Uh, we get a hand to hold, usually with jelly on it. We get an excuse not to grow up and to continue reading the adventures of Piglet and Pooh. We get to watch cartoons. Our refrigerator becomes an art gallery. We get to, we get to be told we're the best coach in the world, even though we don't know a thing about basketball or. Baseball or whatever it is we're doing, you get to you get a front row seat to a lot of things, a lot of historical events like first steps, first words, um, their uh, their faith in Christ, perhaps their first date, uh, the first time behind the wheel, which I can tell you from experience is a marvelous spiritual experience. <laughs> and speaking of crash courses. You get a crash course in nutrition, psychology, nursing, criminal justice, human sexuality, and communication. You get an education that no college can match. Oh, and by the way, speaking of college, there's also that to pay for after your $310,000 you've already paid. And just about the time you think it's over and your empty nesting arms are aching, you get to hold a grandbaby. And you get to watch your kids spend $310,000 per child. Well, let's look together at the book of Leviticus, chapter 12, and we'll talk a little bit about the blessing of children and these very unusual laws of motherhood in Leviticus chapter 12, and more importantly... We'll talk about what wonderful timeless truths there are in these mere eight verses that give us insight into our own walk with God and even eternal encouragement, believe it or not. Having children is a blessing, and I don't mean that just in the sense of they're the, happy times and great memories, but this was a good thing that God created. In fact, it's something that God commanded. The very first command ever given to humanity was be fruitful and multiply. It required children as the product of that command. It was God's blessing that we also get to participate in a sense of his work as creator. We bring people into the world through this amazing process uh, from the love of a husband and wife. It's amazing. Uh, But it is a very different time. It is a a very different time, especially childbirth. Childbirth. There is a whole humorous uh, series of events that we could talk about with regard to childbirth and how that all happens and uh, all the things that surprise us. But uh, it's a time of transition. You have to care for a newborn. The mother has to be physically Uh, cared for in a different way, a special way, till she's back to full strength. Daddy has to take up the slack. I mean, everybody eats pizza for six weeks because Dad's in charge of the meals. It's not a normal time. It's a time of transition. And it is a burden in many ways on sleep, emotion, finances, pretty much patience, everything you can think of. It is a challenge. And when we look at Leviticus 12, we see a passage that describes such a time. It's a a special time with special conditions, special stipulations, though while they're not in effect today, there are timeless truths that are still in effect that are very much for us today. So let's look at the first few verses here together to kind of set the context of these unusual laws and their timeless truths. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, as in the days of her menstruation she shall be unclean. On the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So, It's interesting and even disturbing, I think, to some throughout history that the Bible has called women unclean when they give birth. I mean, we just said that this is a command of God to be fruitful and multiply. If the husband and wife, the wife in particular, is simply following what God said, why does God call her unclean for doing what he has commanded her to do? Well, remember what we saw last time, that the word unclean doesn't necessarily mean dirty, physically, or sinful. It is an unfortunate translation of a technical word. Some, someone or something that is unclean is just ritually impure. And all that means is they can't enter God's presence until they have been cleansed. Remember, we talked about the fact that unclean means that you're in a non-normal state. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. Could it Could be everything right with you? This, as is mentioned here, happened for a woman every single month, not just during childbirth. This happens also for men for a number of reasons we will see in Leviticus. And if we were to jump ahead just a peek at... Chapter 13, we see this is also true for leprosy and any other skin diseases that may not necessarily be anybody's fault. It's just a ritual term that has to have a ritual solution that isn't necessarily right or wrong and definitely sinful or unsinful. So when you hear the word unclean, don't think sinful. Think just it needs to be taken care of in a ritual sense so that it can be brought back into a normal state of uh, being able to go into the presence of God. Why does a childbirth make a woman unclean? It has nothing to do with sin. It's a non-normal state, and that's all it means. To enter God's presence, basically, you have to be whole. You have to be perfect, not only spiritually, but also physically. With childbirth, there's a loss of blood. The woman's life was actually could be potentially in danger, some ladies have died during childbirth, plus this loss of blood also prevented her from entering the tabernacle, because the only blood allowed in the tabernacle is sacrificial blood of, the, of animals. So God is persnickety only because he wants to teach holiness, and these, uh, these normal events are part of that. Notice if she has a son, she is called unclean for a week. Uh, The unclean status basically is interrupted by the higher law of circumcision. She is then able to um, uh, go through this ceremony of circumcision with her male child. But then, after that, she is to remain unclean again for a period of time. Look at verse 4. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing, nor enter the sanctuary Until the days of her purification are completed. So, if we do the math, this is 40 days total that she can't enter the tabernacle. So, imagine this, ladies, for 40 days. It was uh, so fascinating that Chuck was talking about his COVID and being gone for two or three weeks. Uh, What what were his words? Enforced isolation, I think is what he said. Uh, For a woman who had given birth to a male child, this was 40 days. This was a little more than a month that she had to remain away from the tabernacle until the time that she was purified. So imagine this, that um, ladies, you're stuck at home. No internet, no Zoom, no television, um, and, and no people, no fellowship to talk to anybody. You are just basically at home for these 40 days. But if she has a, uh, a female, has a daughter, look at verse 5. It gets even more significant. We're told, if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 66 days, double the time for a male child, for a female child. Why in the world? Why in the world? And I'll tell you what, feminists love to point to passages like this and to say, look, this is just proof positive of a patriarchal male chauvinist society that the Bible heralds. Actually, it isn't. Uh, The the only reason that this is true for a daughter is because it is anticipating that the daughter also is going to participate in this privilege of motherhood down the road. So it includes the daughter as well in this process. Three times a year, uh, all males, all men were required to go up, either to the tabernacle or after the temple was built, to go up to Jerusalem and to worship the Lord. But women were given the option of coming or not coming because not all women were able to come. And so it wasn't commanded. Come if you want. If you don't want or not able to come, then women were exempt. But keep your place here, if you would, in Leviticus and turn to Luke chapter 8. And let's look at a very interesting connection to this passage. Luke chapter 8. Imagine, again, the eagerness of following a fellowship with God, and you've not been able to. If for, for a male child, 40 days. For a female child, it was some 60-plus days. And or 80 days. Imagine that if you couldn't come and to worship in the tabernacle or in the temple for almost 3 months. Now imagine 12 years. Luke chapter 8, look down at verse 43. Luke's got long chapters. Luke 8:43. Familiar story, but think of it in the context of Leviticus because they certainly were Luke 8:43 and a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, including the woman, Peter said, master, people are crowding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone did touch me. For I was aware that power had gone out of me. It sort of sounds like Jesus is this prima donna walking around in this crowd. It's like, Who touched me? You know, how how dare anyone touch me? And the disciples are like, Who hasn't touched you? Everyone's pressing around you. But Jesus is talking about a special touch, a touch that only he knows and the woman knows. He's looking around to find her. Who touched me? No one knew what Jesus was talking about except Jesus and the woman. And we're introduced to this woman whom this hemorrhage was a very, very difficult thing. And we've just read in Leviticus why this would be such a difficult thing. It's difficult enough to imagine that it could be up to 80 days. But imagine 12 years for this woman. She was not allowed to come to the tabernacle. She was not allowed uh, to be able to worship God according to the law for 12 years. Uh, also, if she was married, she and her husband were not allowed to have intimate relations while she had an issue of blood. So imagine, for 12 years, this is the case. Or more likely, if she's not married, she couldn't get married because of this. She suffered financially, socially, emotionally, and in some sense spiritually. She still obviously could have a relationship with God, but she couldn't come into the the presence of God, into the tabernacle or the temple, because of this, uh, this hemorrhage. Luke says that her condition, no one could heal her, that she was beyond speaking, beyond healing. And humanly speaking, she'd done all that could be done, and it was completely inadequate. There was not a more desperate place to be but she had this hope. She, she came up, and we're told that she just touched the fringe of his cloak. And other gospel accounts actually record her words that say, if I just, all I need to do is just touch the fringe of his cloak. And I believe that I will be healed. And, of course, this is exactly what happened. So when Jesus asks who touched him, the disciples you know, say, you've got to be kidding. Who hasn't touched you? And then verse 47 When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. So Jesus' searching eyes scan the crowd, find the woman, and she comes, falls down in front of Jesus, fearing and trembling. Why? Why? Well, she had just denied, because everyone said, everyone had denied it, verse 45, including the woman. She had just denied it, but now when Jesus basically locks eyes with her and she can't deny it, she comes down trembling, and she says, she explains the reason why she had touched him. In other words, she has to say publicly what before had been a private suffering, now she has to publicly say... Uh, I have been unclean for 12 years. Oh, and by the way, she's just touched everybody, including Jesus, making them unclean. So this is why she's afraid. She has broken both religious and social taboos by touching a rabbi and making him unclean. She pushed through the crowd, and she comes trembling because she fully expects to be rebuked, but instead... Look at Jesus' words, verse 48. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Beautiful, simple words of acceptance and inclusion, not rejection. Daughter. You don't see that word show up very much in the Gospels, certainly from the mouth of Jesus. It's very rare. And Jesus gives her this tender word. Why did Jesus make such a big deal about having her come forward? I mean, Christ could have easily, we would have, we, you know, what would Jesus do? That's what we often think. What we really think is what would we want Jesus to do? And that's what we would do. In this case, what would we want Jesus to do? Just kind of let her go away and not be humbled, but be humiliated by having to say all this in public. Why would Jesus call her out? Because Jesus didn't want her to just slip away with guilt. Jesus wanted her to hear these words, to hear these words, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And the account in Mark says, And no longer be afflicted by your, uh, be healed of your affliction. Jesus wanted her to to hear these words. Jesus wanted her to know that she could go in peace, that now she could be social, now she could get married, now she could, most importantly, go to the temple in Jerusalem, offer the sacrifices that Leviticus says, and know that God accepts her. This healing that she thinks she snuck up and took, Jesus says, no, I am giving it to you, and I am blessing you. Now, keep your place here in Luke, because we'll be back, and turn back to Leviticus Chapter 12. When a person unclean touched another person, the unclean person made everybody that they touch unclean. It doesn't go the other way, but not so with Jesus. Whenever Jesus came into contact with those who were unclean, instead of them making him unclean, his touch made them clean. It went just the opposite. Lepers... Unclean lepers were healed, no leprosy, no uncleanness. The dead were raised, no dead body, no uncleanness. And this woman restored to full health. Well, there's a principle, and there's really only one principle that we're going to pull from our text today, both in Luke and in Leviticus. And it's it's a little long, so I'll repeat it once or twice. But here it is. Only those who are whole both spiritually and physically, only those who are whole, both physically, uh, spiritually and physically, may enter the presence of our holy God. Only those who are whole, both physically and spiritually, may enter the presence of our holy God, and only Jesus makes that possible because when we come to Christ, none of us come spiritually whole, and none of us come physically whole. It takes the grace of God in both contexts. I hope that you've come to the place in your life where you realize, I think all, all of us would admit, in fact, I know we would, the statistics back it up, that, that we are not perfect physically. Now, there may be some Men among you that think that you are the ideal specimen of humanity, just ask the person sitting next to you if that's true or not. Most of us know for a fact that physically we are not perfect, and the longer we live, the more clear that becomes. Hello, everyone. Wayne here. If you've ever thought about taking a journey to Israel to see where Jesus actually walked, or if you'd like to walk in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul on his amazing missionary journeys, well, then I invite you to come with me. Registrations are open for my upcoming tours and extensions to Israel, Egypt, Turkey, Greece, Jordan, and Rome. That's right, whatever part of the Bible lands you'd like to see, we're probably going there over the course of the next year. You can see videos, complete itineraries, and all that you need to know at waynestyles.com slash tours. I hope you'll join me, and I promise you will never read the Bible the same after you go to the lands of the Bible. That's waynestyles.com slash tours. And now, back to the podcast. Most of us know for a fact that physically we are not perfect, and the longer we live, the more clear that becomes. But it may not be so obvious to you that spiritually you have a need. Because we tend to justify ourselves and our actions by our motives, not by the fact that we have broken God's law. And we all have. I've broken God's law. You've broken God's law. And the book of James says that if we've broken any part of God's law, it's like breaking the whole thing. One sins all it takes to declare us unrighteous in the sight of God. And yet the good news is that As I just said with our principle, only those who are whole spiritually and physically can enter the presence of God, and the good news, Jesus makes that possible. What we can't do for ourselves spiritually, Jesus did for us, and that he died on the cross as a punishment, as a sacrifice for our sins, and he rose again to show that our sins were paid for. And he gives us the great promise that all we have to do is just believe it, to trust that what Jesus did by dying for us pays for our sins, and our sins are forgiven. In fact, immediately we're promised that we have a spiritual uh, rebirth. And the good news is one day God will also raise us, Christ will also raise us physically, that it's not just a spiritual, but also a physical hope that we have. Leviticus 12, look at the last few verses there, starting uh, verse 6. We read, When the days of her purification are completed for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one year old lamb for a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether a male or a female. She brings two offerings. One is the burnt offering that she'd been unable to bring this whole time that she's been away from the tabernacle during the days of her purification. But also, we're told, at least in the New American Standard, it's called a sin offering here. Does anybody else have a different translation at the end of verse 6, bring a young pigeon or turtle dove for some other offering? Anybody? Anybody have NIV? Purification. Excellent. Lindsay's translation is, I think, much better. Again, we're sort of um, at a disadvantage here at times when we read English. Sin offering gives the implication that it's for sin. She hasn't sinned. It's a technical term that actually means purification. The NIV does us a very good translation here. It's a purification. And notice that we're told that it doesn't say that she is forgiven. It says she is cleansed. It's just a matter of changing from the status of unclean to clean, from non-normal back to normal. And she can once again enter and fellowship in the tabernacle. No sin involved. And notice an additional provision, the last verse, verse 8. But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, The one for a burnt offering and the other for the sin offering or purification offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she will be clean. Again, not forgiven, but clean. It is a technical switch from unclean to clean. And the the point of verse 8 is money is not the issue. The issue is let's get clean. Let's get back into the normal state however you can afford it. If you can afford a lamb, bring a lamb. If you can't afford a lamb, then the provision is made here for a very cheap sacrifice. Now, we can leave Leviticus now and turn back to Luke. Hopefully you still got your place saved there. And turn from uh, where you are there in Luke to chapter 2 of Luke, Luke 2. This passage we've looked at in Leviticus was also applied in the life of Christ, when Christ was born, Luke 2, verse 21, Luke two twenty one, and when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, and now we quote from Leviticus, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So what does this tell us about the financial status of Joseph and Mary? They were poor, right. And what does it tell us about the the timing of the Magi? This is some 60 days after the birth of Jesus. I mean, every Christmas pageant has the Magi showing up and the camel's right there at the manger. Well, actually, if we read carefully in the Bible, we'll see the Magi didn't show up actually until Jesus was a toddler. Um, at least two years old, and they came to a house, not a stable. So Magi came far later, but we also know that when the Magi brought all that money, they could have afforded a lamb if, if, by that time. So we also see from this that, uh, that uh, the, the Gospel of Matthew is dead on correct, which is no surprise about the timing of the coming of the Magi. But the point is that Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, came and they were poor and they still offered this pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, according to what was written here in Leviticus chapter 12. There's a significant principle that we can find from this, and it's really, I mean, the same thing we've already mentioned, I'll just repeat it, because of Jesus' name. We're told here that they named him Jesus. What does Jesus mean? Yeshua or Joshua. What does Joshua or Yeshua mean? The Lord saves. The Lord saves. And so once again, our principle, only those who are whole both spiritually and physically, may enter the presence of our holy God. And only Jesus makes that possible. Jesus saves. The Lord saves. And like your spirit, your body has got to be perfect before you enter heaven. Aren't you glad? I'm glad. My body's got to be perfect before I enter heaven, or the eternal state, I should say. We're going to enter heaven. I remember, I never forget, Uh, I was sitting in this class. I was sitting somewhere like right about there where Norm is sitting. And I remember Dr. Toussaint, who was standing right here, and we were in Luke 16, and he taught us all about how there is a temporary body when we get to heaven before the rapture. I remember I almost stood up. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. This guy's been teaching truth all these years, and now all of a sudden he's giving us this temporary body business? Oh, I was like, I've got to study this. So I did. I went home and studied, and I thought, he's right. He's exactly right. Uh, if we all die today and the rapture didn't happen for another, you know, 100 years, we get temporary bodies in heaven. Luke 16. You check it out. And then um, when the rapture does happen, though, our spirit and our body, this body, is actually resurrected and perfected into the eternal body that we will have forever. It's, uh, it's an amazing truth, but it is, um, it is true nonetheless. Like your spirit, your body will be perfect before you enter glory. Now, if advertisers knew that, you got to have a perfect body. Good grief. We could make all kinds of money on that. The truth is we all have two bodies, the one that we have and the one that we wish we had. 94% of American men and 99% of women would change something about their looks if they could. Nearly everyone longs to replace the ugly parts of their bodies with beautiful versions. But like our souls, it's not us that does it, it's God. A few years back, you may remember, I was up here with a sling on my arm. I had uh, surgery on my shoulder. I tore the labrum, or the cartilage, in my shoulder, in the socket. I have no idea how I did it. It just all of a sudden started hurting, hurting, hurting worse, 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 worse. Finally go to the doctor. He says, well, you, your labrum is torn, there's nothing we can do but surgery. So surgery we did, physical therapy we did, long two-month process of recovery, and huh, done. And the shoulder's great. And now this shoulder <laughs> has started hurting exactly the same. I mean, it is the identical pain. I go back to the doctor, same doctor, and he says, you know, let's try physical therapy for four to six weeks and see if that doesn't strengthen it, maybe that'll take care of it. I was like, all right, we're just putting off the inevitable, but I'll do it. So I did it. And you know what? It's worse. It's worse. So anyway, I've got an appointment with, with my surgeon. He's going to take pictures of my shoulder, and I hope that – I hope, honestly, that we'll do surgery because I can't imagine this for the rest of my life. Pain. Don't you hate it when your body hurts? Oh, my, my, my dad – Tells me, he says, Wayne, he says, getting old is an adventure. I thought that's a nice way to say it. And getting old is an adventure in so many ways. This week is a perfect, perfect example. Uh, I, I was going to the surgeon this week to, I had an appointment with the surgeon this week to have him look at my shoulder. And whenever I have to do something, I try to do everything on that day, because if I might have to take off work, I'd rather just get it all done in one day. So if I' got to meet with somebody, if I'm going to have lunch with somebody, if I'm going to have coffee with somebody, whatever it is, it's all got to happen on the same day. This is a terrible weakness of mine called a longing for efficiency. But sometimes it doesn't work out like this week. This was Wednesday. So I take the day off for all these meetings, and the first visit was the optometrist. I arrived 15 minutes early. First of all, in filming in Malta two or three weeks ago, I stepped on my glasses, and the lens pops out. In fact, last week, uh, and, and I could slip it back in, and as long as I didn't breathe wrong, you know, I could, walk, I could walk along, and it'd be just fine. But I took it out of my pocket, and the lens flies off, and I didn't know that it was gone, I put it on, and it's like I can't see, but one eye's clear and one eye is still just blurry. And I go, oh, no, I've dropped the lens. So I can't see to find the lens. I'm walking all back through the church, retracing my steps, looking down. Some usher said, sir, are you okay? I'm fine. I'm just looking for my lens. Picked it up off the ground, and uh, one of you, actually, I remember. Who was it? Asked me. Well, they're not here, or they're not saying. (laughs) Asked me, are you just picking up trash off the floor? (laughs) Said, no, my lens popped out. Anyway, so I go there. It was from my annual eye thing anyway, which is always so challenging, because there's no solution when your eyes don't work. You either get contacts that you don't like, or you get glasses like these progressives where you can only see about this small, a little pinhole out of them, or you get multi-line uh, trifocals, which is what I'm going to try next. Oh, Thanks. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. So I show up 15 minutes early to the optometrist, walk in, and I say my name, and the lady says, oh, Mr. Stiles, you're at the wrong office. <laughs> what office am I supposed to be at? You're supposed to be at our legacy office. Well, where's that? Well, it's only eight minutes away. I thought, well, okay. And then she said these words. I thought she said, don't worry, we won't penalize you. (laughs) How do you get penalized at an optometrist? Did they poke you in the eyes? (laughs) (laughs) So I get the address from her. I put it in that little Waze app, and off we go. And it's sending me like 15 minutes someplace. And I'm thinking, well, maybe traffic is bad because, you know, it usually reroutes you. It took me to, like, East Plano. And I'm in this parking lot looking around for the place, and it's nowhere to be found. And so I, th- I put the same address in Google Maps, and it takes me all the way back over to west of the tollway. And so I call them, and I say, uh, <laughs> I'm going to be about 20 minutes late. Do you want me to reschedule or come? They said, no, come. So for this optometrist visit that I was 15 minutes early for, I'm 30 minutes late for, and we go through our same rigmarole, you know, there's, no, there's nothing's really going to work. He says, instead of being 20-20, he says, we try to make people 20 happy. <laughs> so this is what I've got to look forward to is 20 happy. So I'm late to lunch with my friend, and then for, after that, I'm headed back up into where I live in Aubrey, to have coffee with another guy, and bad traffic. I mean, do you mind if I just weep on your shoulder for a few minutes? (laughs) All of this is to get me back in the area to go to my shoulder doctor. So I I, I walk into the shoulder doctor, and I was so excited. I mean, I had gone fast to get there. I don't want to say that I was speeding, but this is true. I was. I was. And here's the crazy thing. You know, the best critics are hypocrites. Have you ever noticed that when you're driving, you notice all the errors of other people? Like, as I was speeding, this guy from this left lane pulls out in front of me. He was supposed to turn left, pulls out in front of me. And I said, hey, that's against the law. As I realized that I was doing the same thing. Anyway, walk into the shoulder doctor right on time. I mean, I looked, it was exactly the right time. So I'm standing there, give her my name, you know, first appointment for a total success all day long. And uh, she says, what's your name? And I give her my name. And she kind of wrinkles her face like this. She says, what day were you supposed to be here? I said, the 15th. And she looked up and she says, it's the 15th of next month. And I literally asked her, I said, do you mind if I wait? <laughs> Getting old is an adventure. If it's not your back, it's your shoulder, it's your memory, it's your eyes. All right, and I'm young. Bless you. Bless you. What, what happens when you're my age? When I'm your age, I just won't know the difference, so it's okay. Getting, getting old is like driving cars. It's a wonderful illustration. So if you don't mind another little story. A few years ago, uh, I would always drive old cars. I would drive very old cars and to make sure that my wife and daughters had the, the reliable car with the air conditioning and everything. And I would get this, these junkers, and the air conditioning went out in my junker uh, one summer. And it was like right before August. And so I go to the place to get it looked at, and they told me what it was going to cost to get it fixed, and I thought, you know what, fresh air would be nice. Just have fresh air for a while. And it's bearable if you're moving. But when you got the windows down, and you're at a stoplight, and 18 Wheeler pulls up, and his engine is blowing in, I I began to understand why lizards in the desert are just as still as they can be. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. And that same week, our car overheated, other car overheated, our reliable car, so we had to rent a car. It was wonderful. I rented this car that, I mean, electric, everything, CD player zzz, slides in. Sounds like Fernando Ortega's in my back seat singing to me. The air conditioning is just blowing my hair back like this. Oh, it was wonderful. And, it, and I thought, you know, we drive cars that break down. We have bodies that break down. Wouldn't it be great to rent your heavenly body for a couple of weeks? <laughs> this is just a loner. I'm just renting this thing just to see what it's like. Listen to a couple of words that Paul wrote. First of all, just listen. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, he says, "...our citizenship is in heaven." And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. What a great promise is that. Philippians 3.20. Listen also to 1 Corinthians 15.50. Paul writes, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood Must put on immortality. It's a sure thing, and it's coming. Not only has Christ redeemed our souls, but he promises to raise our bodies to new life for eternity. Only those who are whole, spiritually and physically, may enter the presence of our holy God, and only Jesus makes it possible. Let's pray. Our Father, we look at these dusty old verses from Leviticus, scratch our heads as to the significance and even the rightness of what we read about uh, a mother giving birth to a son, to a daughter, the cleansing, just these rituals that seem so ridiculous from our perspective. And yet looking at it in context, looking at it in the life of Jesus, both his healing the woman With the issue of blood, as well as his own birth and Mary's godliness, to come and honor the law, even though she was dirt poor. All of these things give us this wonderful insight that you care about our lives, our bodies. The truth, as we've read from Paul's words, that you are going to resurrect us from the dead and that we will be changed, gives us a great hope. Thank you, Father, for the hope that we have in Christ, because truly, it's only because of him that we have this hope, both spiritually and physically. We pray also for anyone, anyone here, Father, who is still resting in the futility of their good works to earn salvation, that you would show them that that cannot erase their sin. Only Christ's death on the cross can take sin away, and only faith in Jesus Allows that to occur. So we pray for your Holy Spirit to open blind eyes, to ignite dead hearts, and to resurrect a spiritual life and also with the hope of a physical life in the future. Thanks, Father, for giving us the hope, and we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Live the Bible. Isn't God's Word great? We are made whole through Jesus Christ, which makes it possible for us to be changed forever. It's a sure thing, and it is surely coming. Next time, we'll look at three tough chapters in Leviticus, in which we'll mine some timeless principles we can apply to our lives today. You know, it may not be obvious at first, but that's what's so great about Scripture. There are always spiritual truths waiting for us to discover beneath the surface. And I'd also like to say if this podcast has encouraged you, I'm asking you to help me keep it going. You can now give a tax-deductible gift to help share the Live the Bible podcast with literally thousands of people each week. To give a one-time or monthly donation, just go to LiveTheBiblePodcast.com and click on Donate. That's LiveTheBiblePodcast.com and click on Donate. Thanks so much, and God bless.